Oh, we can do better than that. Come on. Good morning. That's better. Thank you. Um, it's so good to be here with you this morning. It's my fifth or sixth time to the Kansas City area, and I just, I love coming out to this part of the country. I'm from Oregon and uh, the West Coast, and so I was very pleased to see a coffee stand out in your lobby this morning. I felt right at home. And so uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I, I think that it's only fair that if someone comes to talk to a church, or anyone really, and, and you know, bring a message on sexual brokenness or, or, or how the church should respond to that. I think that it's just fair that you know why I have the right or privilege to do that at all. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty controversial topic, and it's pretty uh, weighty for, for the body of Christ. And so I think it's only fair that you know that I, I have a right to be up here to speak on this. So I want to share with you that when I come and I talk about these issues, I talk about this from three different perspectives. And the first perspective I bring to the table this morning is that I come as someone who has struggled with homosexuality. From the time I was about 12 years old, I recognized that I was attracted sexually to men and not, not to women. And that was a problem for me because I was saved when I was four. And I loved Jesus. And this, as you might imagine, is quite a conflict for a kid that's growing up in a conservative church uh, in a time where the church certainly was dealing a lot less with this issue on a redemptive level than they are now, uh, I really struggled intensely with how to understand my faith and my sexuality. And I need you to know that I did not want to be gay. I prayed every day that the Lord would take the attractions from me because I did not want to displease him. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do with the life that it looked like I was headed towards. I didn't want that life. I didn't want that identity. But yet there it was. And so not only did I struggle with that, but you know, I lived in a church culture where it really wasn't safe to talk about it. And so I didn't talk about it. I did what a lot of people do who struggle with sexual issues in the church. And I tried to behave externally uh, in a way to manage the, the defilement that I felt on the inside. So I was involved in everything at church. I was, I was you know, on the Bible quizzing team, and I was on the worship team, and I was on the youth leadership team, and I was a part-time janitor of the church, and I was on the drama team. I know it's a big shock. But, I mean, that was a joke. We can laugh at jokes. <laughs> uh, I did everything I could to try to be good because I felt so dirty on the inside. And honestly, if you've lived the Christian life for any length of time, you know that when you strive to earn favor with God through your actions and through your behavior management, that's a really empty way to live the Christian faith. And eventually you get tired and you get disillusioned. And I reached a point at 19 years old where I was so tired with trying to earn God's love that I, I really kind of rebelled against him. And I met a guy at church who was struggling with the same issues I was. And secretly, we formed a gay relationship. And I was in that relationship for seven months. And I'll be honest with you in that, that for the first couple of months of that relationship was very satisfying to me because as Proverbs 27, 7 says, to him who is well-fed, honey is not desirable, but to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. And because I was starved for love and starved for acceptance, because I could never accept the love that people were offering me because I was being, I was being duplicitous and I, I was living one life over here and one life over there. And so anytime someone would love me or accept me in the church inside my head, and, and raise your hand if you've ever heard Satan say this to you, if they really knew what you're dealing with, they would reject you. Just raise your hand if you ever heard something like that from the enemy. Oh, come on, be honest. If I have to be up here talking about my sexual history, you have to admit that Satan sometimes tries to insult you. It's only fair, correct? 
So let's try that one more time. Have you ever heard Satan say something like that to you if they really knew what I'm dealing with? Thank you very much. So I dealt with that, and I, you know, for the first couple of months of that relationship, I felt loved and I felt secure. But then the Holy Spirit began convicting me of that sin. And eventually, after about seven months, I got to the point where I recognized that I was, I was taking bad love, and that wasn't any longer good. And so I surrendered that relationship, but I hid for two more years, never confessing what I had done and still hiding, still felt really rejectable and really defiled until finally coming to a place of surrendering and confessing my sin and experiencing the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus, really and truly for the first time in my life. So when I come to you to talk about these issues, I don't talk about this in theory. I talk this, about this with personal experience, not only of the struggle, but also as one whom Christ has redeemed. Now, that was uh, 20 years and one month ago, actually now 20 years and two months ago, that I gave up that relationship. I'm happy to say that 13 years and one month ago, I married the love of my life, my beautiful wife, Suzanne. And now I have three daughters, ages 10, 8, and 3. And I always say that having daughters makes me have a different kind of struggle with men. Um, (laughs) It's very different than my old one. It's now kind of like a shotgun in the closet rather than me. So, I mean, it's like, <laughs> thank you for laughing. That was, that was a joke. Although not because I do own, own a shotgun. I mean, my, my oldest is hitting puberty and you just got to, you know, protect her. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's fun because that's a life. It doesn't prove that I'm, that I'm cured or healed. But what that is evidence of is that a life that I once thought was impossible and unwanted is now both possible and desired. I am living a different life. And anyone that has given their life to Jesus has the same opportunity that I do, that God can redeem us and restore us into his intention and purposes. It doesn't, none of our past disqualify us from God's good gifts now. So I come from that perspective of someone who struggled and someone redeemed. And then I also come from another perspective. You see, I've spent the last 15 years in full-time ministry to this community. I've had the 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 privilege of walking alongside hundreds of men and women who also have struggled with this issue and were being daring and courageous enough to begin to surrender that to the Lordship of Christ. And I have had the privilege of seeing people transform miraculously in this issue. I've also had the the tragedy of watching people who get disillusioned and give up the journey. You see, if, if you've walked with people any length of time, you know that... This life is hard, and sometimes faith is hard, especially when the, the stakes are high. And so I've had the privilege of watching people transform, and I've also watched people be disillusioned and hurt by the church and walk away into a life that God would not have for them, not because he's in, not able to heal and redeem them, but because they just lose hope along the way. Along in that ministry, I had the privilege of walking alongside families that were dealing with loved ones who were embracing a gay life. You see, these weren't people that were, you know, contending against a sin struggle. They were people that had embraced this fully and and really stepped into that community. And their parents and their siblings and their grandparents and their friends were struggling to know how do I relate to this loved one who holds such despairing differences in in their beliefs and their convictions than I do. And there's so many complications that come with those relationships, but I had the joy of working with these families and and helping them navigate those waters, helping them to understand their loved ones, helping them not to take on guilt that isn't theirs, but also helping them learn how to repent of things that maybe they did do wrong. 
It was such a privilege and a joy to see families restored uh, through that ministry. So that's the second perspective I bring as a minister in this field. And now I spend my life, I'm a pastor at a, at a four-square church in, in Oregon, but I'm also uh, someone who travels the country full-time, actually, and speaks on these issues. So I have the joy of speaking to good people like you um, often and help the church navigate these waters because we need to learn how to respond better to this issue. Amen? Amen? And so it's a joy to be here to do that. But the third perspective I bring to the table today is, you know, I, I have my own experience and I, I have a pastoral experience, but I also have a loved one that I deeply care about and I'm in close relationship with who has embraced a gay life and a gay identity, and I have to figure out how to practice what I preach and have a relationship with them. My own identical twin brother. Can you imagine holiday dinners at our house? You know, if, if you can imagine being my identical twin, I travel the country, I have my own testimony walking out of homosexuality, and then my twin brother married to a man and adopted a son and their whole community, holiday dinners can be a little intense. It's like, pass the gravy and repent! You know, it's... Okay, it's not that bad. Yeah, it is. But um, no, I, I've had to learn how to put into practice everything I preach. I've had to learn how to, to be uncomfortable for the sake of relationship because I believe that someday my brother will repent. And you know what I don't want? I don't want there to be any offenses between him and God based on how I've treated him. And I know that my res- I'm not responsible for him or for his choices, but I am responsible to him to present the best model of Jesus in front of him that I can, the best example of redemption and the best invitation to come back into the fold. That's my job. You know, although I travel the country and I've helped people walk out of this, the Lord really convinced me one day, Drew, you can't make him change and you can't bring him conviction. You'd think the one person would be most qualified to do that would be me, but that's often how it works. We don't have that privilege with a lot of our loved ones. We just have to stand back and let the Lord do what the Lord's going to do and yet try to remove the obstacles out of the way. So those are the three perspectives I bring to the table. When I talk about sexual brokenness, do you think it uniquely qualifies me to be able to speak to you this morning? Yes. You weren't as on board as I hoped you would be. Uh, but I, I won't be insecure, and I'll continue forward. So that was just my introduction to me, not even my message. So let's move on to the message. Uh, but before we do that, let's pray, because a message like this needs some prayer. Amen. Lord God, I pray this morning that as we delve into this topic, I pray this, this very simple thing. Lord, let your spirit fall on us and give us your wisdom to know how we can respond better. Lord, in, in areas of our lives where we've made mistakes in this area, please, Lord, let us be convicted but not condemned. Let us understand that your grace is for us as well as that community. And, and Lord, if there's areas where we personally need to repent, can we do that, Lord God, through, through this message and and not allow the enemy to condemn us. As a body, Lord, can we learn how to better represent your heart and character to this community? And if we've done things wrong, again, Lord, let us corporately repent for that. And Lord, for anyone who he, here who just needs hope, just needs to remember that you are good and faithful to us, that you are powerful, Lord, may hope rest on us this morning as we hear And as we process through what you have to say to us this morning, Lord, use me, though I am inadequate, use me anyway to communicate your heart and your truth. Thank you, Lord God. Amen. Okay, this morning I'm going to focus on two biblical mandates that Christ displayed so beautifully, and yet so often the church struggles to bring together 
in a right and good marriage. And those are the, the two aspects of truth and love. You know, when I think about this issue and the church, the church has often failed to hold these things together in balance. Often you see within the body of Christ that there's, there's a disparity where, where you'll go off one direction and weigh your, yourself as a community or as an, in, as an individual believer on the side of love or on the side of truth to the exclusion of the other one almost when it comes to this community or even really any community that we struggle to relate to. And yet Christ displayed such a beautiful marriage of the two. And so what I would like to say to us this morning is that we don't have to sacrifice love for truth. And we don't have to sacrifice truth for love. In fact, without love, there is no truth. And without truth, there is no love. We have to learn how to hold these two things in balance if we are to accurately represent his heart to a community that needs him. Amen? To hold those two things together is to truly embrace a gospel-centered message to a broken world around us. Now, in order to do that, I want to suggest that the way that we do that is to engage with this issue in truth and love through the context of, of really three things. First off, how we understand the character of God. Because how we understand the character of God will dictate how we live this out. How we understand a biblical perspective on sexuality also will very heavily inform how we engage in this. And then third, how we understand and relate to people dealing with homosexual struggle or gender identity issues. How we have or feel permission to engage. Those three things will really be the foundations for how truth and love is employed in relationship with these people. So I want to start first and foremost with how we understand the character of God in light of this struggle. And I want to start with a quote from one of my favorite authors and theologians, A.W. Tozer. Anyone familiar with A.W. Tozer? I call him Ah Tozer because he's just that good. Um, He was a Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor and theologian, and he wrote this. Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her conception of God. And I insist upon this and have said it many times that the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy idea of who God is. He also said Christianity is strong and weak at any given time based on our concept of God's character. In fact, A.W. Tozer wrote volumes on the character of God. And it's really incredibly true. When we view God through the lens of truth, we begin to weigh on the side of his holiness and his righteousness and his judgment. And that's not a bad thing. God is righteous. He is holy. And he is a just judge. But it's like this, if we can, we can focus as a community on one good attribute of God and completely distort his character, because he is not simply one aspect. He holds justice and mercy together in perfect balance. He is not one or the other, he is both. He holds holiness that he is so set apart perfectly with the fact that he is eminent. He is close. He is in everything with us. God has no conflict with these things that we have a hard time balancing together. And so I want to I challenge us today that in our own beliefs, if we weigh ourselves heavily on one of these attributes or, or aspects of his character, we display a distorted image to the world around us. And we have to work through that. We have to get to a place where we are displaying a more accurate representation of his character and heart. 
Many Christian communities respond to these issues of sexual brokenness through the filter of his holiness, like I said, or righteousness and judgment. Consequently, the outward expression of that tends to err on the side of the truth spectrum. And historically, this has been more like the conservative branch of the church and often displayed even through our political activism. We get really, really um, passionate about truth and about righteousness and about um, sin and about telling the truth and holding to the truth. When we weigh on this, our character begins to be colored by the fact that we are weighing ourselves more on that attributes of his, of his nature. And so we get more aggressive. We would like to call it bold. Anyone ever met someone who's very bold in the faith and really just want to take a stock and stick it in his mouth so that he doesn't talk anymore? But he's bold. When you begin to walk that direction, you begin to lack grace. You don't have a lot of patience or, or mercy for people. And really, that be, breeds a lot of fear in the community. Fear of judgment, fear of condemnation, fear of, of exposure. That begins to sow legalism into our church culture, where we begin looking a lot at our performance, a lot at our behaviors and not our heart. Consequently, what happens is when we deal with communities that are outside of our own, they begin to feel marginalized because our perspective is weighed on whether or not you fit behaviorally or whether you agree to the right things. And if you don't, then you are definitely on the outside. And people who already are on the outside, who we need to invite in, are pushed further away rather than invited in to learn of God's grace and mercy. And so those communities, they don't, they don't feel welcome. They don't, they're not compelled to be drawn into our communities. In fact, they run from us and they make their own judgments against us because of what they perceive in us, because of our judgments. And unfortunately, what happens then is we just become very self-righteous. We begin to lose perspective and we forget where we came from. We forget that outside of the grace of God, every single one of us are in the same boat. We start labeling and, and ranking sins as if as if we are not all guilty. Now, there's legitimacy to this stance. We see in our culture, truth has been tossed out. We live in a post-postmodern culture where not only is there no truth, there's just no truth that there is no truth. And so you can't even talk about anything, really, because you don't really have a foundation to stand on. So I get it, and I agree. Please don't hear me say that the truths that we stand on in this, in this weight don't matter I have given my life to defend these truths. I have waged everything, bet all my, all everything, my whole life, my destiny on the basis of these truths. They are so important to me. But if we respond to what we see in our culture out of fear rather than invitation, rather than joy, rather than the, the, the wonderful privilege that we have to live out the truth rather than to scream it at people, then we start trying to win arguments rather than hearts. And that is not what Jesus did. It's a distortion of his, exam- of his life, of his ministry. I want to remind us out of Philippians 2. It says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do not, 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality from God to be something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. First and foremost, we must be humble recognizing that defending the truth, if we are basing it out of our own fear, we are looking to our own interests and not to the interests of those who need to be set free by those very truths. We need to be humble. And 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. When we are motivated by fear of what we see around us, fear of our own rights being taken away, fear of whatever persecution we may perceive legitimately or illegitimately out there, we are not operating from the Holy Spirit. We are not operating in the heart of God. We are operating in a spirit that God did not give us. And so church, may I say really clearly and humbly to you today, if we have erred on the side of truth to the exclusion of love, or if we are reacting out of fear and not humility and love and power, we are not operating with the spirit of Christ. And we have to course correct. On the other end of the spectrum, we see the side of people weigh on love. And you can call it love, or you can call it grace, or you can call it mercy, but there is great error in that distortion as well. The conviction to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is one of the greatest commandments, and I heard that it's part of the nature of this church. It should be the mission statement of every church. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Two greatest commandments. And yet that commandment has taken to mean don't make anyone feel bad. Don't confront our neighbor. Don't let any relational strife be with our neighbor. In fact, it's a real passive form of inclusion that has nothing to do with biblical love. You know, that example of love is to make people feel approved of, to avoid conflict. That avoidance of conflict or discomfort trumps any responsibility to proclaim biblical truth because we don't want to offend or push people away. And I would challenge many of us to even find the word repentance in a lot of Christian literature these days. It's kind of a lost thing in many Christian circles because we don't want to offend people by calling their behavior wrong. This is not love. This is a great distortion. Many young adults and and many millennials and many people in the upcoming generations really struggle with this error. And one of the reasons why is because they see great value in people. They see that, that people need to feel loved and included. And so often, because of the balance towards the truth perspective, they're responding and reacting because they don't want people to feel rejected. And they don't want to feel, see people excluded from the kingdom of God. And without example of how to balance these two together, they make this simple error of moving towards that because the greatest value is to be accepted, not necessarily to be transformed. And I would say that it's, a, it's an air based in virtue just like the air towards truth. But what happens 
when you err on that side is your, your own Christian faith and your communities begin to become passive. They become weak. Cheap grace is fostered. Meaning there's no conviction to begin to submit sin or repent or to walk in obedience. And thus people become very immature in their faith. Very self-centered and immature. There's no transformational power. People's lives just are not transformed. There's a resistance to sanctification because that seems like rules and it seems like behavior modification when really it's a transformed life through the power of Christ and his grace. People begin viewing commandments negatively. And then ultimately what will begin to happen when this is unchecked is the very things that the Bible calls sin, people begin celebrating as diversity because there's no standard. There's no transformation. Have you all seen this happen in the body of Christ? You know, again, Tozer wrote something pretty profound. He said, a lot of people have talked about the goodness of God and have gotten sentimental about it and said God is too good to punish anyone. And so they've ruled out hell, and we've seen that too. But the man who has an adequate conception of God will not only believe in the love of God, but also in the holiness of God. He will not only believe in the mercy of God, but also his justice. And when you see the everlasting God in his holy, perfect union, when you see the one God acting in judgment, you know that the man who chooses evil must never dwell in the presence of this holy God. We have to bring these two truths together of truth and love. If we don't do that, we're going to be ineffective in ministering to this community. Now, one other aspect of God I want to talk about is his sovereignty. Do we believe God is sovereign? Okay, again, I know we're not quite on board with the question and answer part of the Sunday morning service, but let's try again. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? God is in control, right? The word of God says, and I love, I love this, Romans 8, 28, I love the Amplified sometimes. We know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for the good of those who love God and are called according to his plan and purposes. That's Romans eight twenty eight. How many of us believe that? So I know that you might struggle with this. I know I struggled with this because I went through a lot of trauma in my life, and well-meaning Christians use this as an anecdote to me, like, oh, don't you know, God causes all things to work together for the good of those, and I'm just like, okay, slap, you know, like, shut up. It's like when someone, you're going through a a trial, and someone says, consider it pure joy, my brother, when you face trials of many kinds, and you're like, I will rip your face right off, you know, because it's not very loving or compassionate, yet there's truths there. So I want to say this, do we believe that God is in control? Do we believe that God places all people in authority? Oh, it's much more quiet on that one. The word of God does say that he is the one who raises up kings. He's the one who does it. Do we believe God is the one who gives influence and power? Yes. If we are going to be theologically correct, we have to understand that even though people do have will and choice on their own, God is the one who makes all things work together for the good and according to his purposes. He doesn't say all things are good, but even the bad he makes good because he's just that good. Amen? So if that's the case, if he is the one that allows people to have influence, I have to ask you this question about his sovereignty. If he is the one who gives people their influence and their power... We have to ask the theological question, why does such a small portion of our population have so much influence and power? You ever thought about that? The LGBTQ community is a small community. 
something, high numbers would be 5 or 6%. More realistic numbers are probably about the 3 to 2% range. And yet they have so much cultural influence. Would you, would you agree? God is the one who raises up influence and power. The only theological conclusion we can reach is that God is the one who has given them this influence. Why would he do that? If you look back in the Old Testament and you study Israel, his chosen people, God chose this people to display him to the world. And there were times where his people began acting not quite like his chosen people. And God had a way of dealing with that. In some stories in the Old Testament, that would be called exile. Or I like to call it the giant cosmic timeout. How many of you have ever raised kids? You know grounding and timeout is an effective tool for some kids. Well, God has given favor and influence to this people, and they're not, be- they're not behaving. They're not displaying his character. So he sends a foreign pagan nation in to have influence and control over them. Not because God wants to take their favor away, but because God will not continue to bless people who do not display him. You want to know why this community has so much influence and power over our culture and so much control and a lot of times over our church? I'd like to suggest to you that God has put our church in time out because we have not cared to display his character to that community. We've been satisfied and just fine for them to be over there, not in our churches, not disturbing our peace, and quite honestly, if we were to be honest about it, quite content to allow them to go to hell. And God will not allow us to do that any longer. It's kind of like this, uh, a a speaker for, I don't know if you're familiar with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, wonderful ministry. They have an apologist there who came from a Muslim background. And he made this point similarly about people of Muslim faith. He said in, in the last several decades, the United States has sent one missionary for every million Muslims. She said, okay, so God, who cares about these people, and desires no one should perish, but that all should be brought into relationship with him and have eternal life, he says, fine, you don't want to go to them, I'll send them to you. And here we have the current cultural phenomenon we are dealing with now. Because God does not want his people ignoring people he wants to redeem and bring into his kingdom. Like it or not, we are the ones God chooses to use to bring people into relationship with him. And if we are not acting like him, he will have a way of correcting us. Church, we don't have the privilege of ignoring the gay community anymore. That was never our privilege. And I'll tell you, as one who has struggled in this, it actually really encourages my heart to see the Lord do this. Because there are people in that community that are the next Pauls, the next great apologists and evangelists, people who once persecuted the church, who through his redemption will have such great influence and testimony for and with the church. But they have to come to know Jesus first. There has to be an Ananias that'll go and tell them the gospel. There has to be someone willing Church, are we willing?
God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12 says this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't, do not like, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, and nor be weary when, he is, when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Church, we are holistically, corporately being disciplined by a good father who does not want us behaving in a way that does not represent him. And I don't say that in any way to condemn us, but rather to convict us and to change our course. Because God wants to redeem. And he wants to, he wants to gloriously heal people. And congratulations, you've been nominated as the tools in which he wants to do that through. Let's go to the words of Christ in Luke chapter 6, 39 through 42, because we have something to deal with before we really can do that very well. And it says this, Jesus gave the following instruction, can one blind man lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. And now why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. One last thing I need us to know about the character of God is that he is not sending hypocrites to do this work. It is really easy for us to look at the culture out there and pick out all the flaws and all the sins in culture. But church, we've got plenty of our own. Plenty of our own. Can we be committed to allowing the Lord to transform our lives first? You know, the Lord said it in his word, when salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? If our lives don't compel people, to say that God is real and active, then we got a problem. Ravi Zacharias said it himself, the greatest apologetic question he deals with, the greatest concern is, why do so many people who speak of such a supernatural relationship with God display such little transformation? We have to submit our lives first and foremost to the Lord, deal with our own sins first, deal with our own brokenness, Pornography use and divorce and abuse and all this stuff that we can look at in culture and point our finger at is just as prevalent in the church as it is in culture. And so when we presume to try to tell the world how to live their sexual lives, they look at us like, excuse me, you have a forest sticking out of your face. Do you want to first deal with that before you try to take my log out of my eye? Honestly, church, we, I don't say this to condemn anybody, but rather to say, if we want to operate in power, we have to do that not from a place of hypocrisy. He will not bless hypocrisy. Amen? Amen. Let's talk about sex for just a minute. Don't worry, I won't go deeply into this. It is Sunday morning after all, and I know you're probably already uncomfortable enough with all this conversation. That was a joke too. You can laugh at that. God has given us instruction and intention for our sexuality. It's, it's vastly more powerful and significant than we think. I would say that one of the mistakes that the church has made in this is we focused on behavior, on a list of rules, and missed the bigger picture. I want to say this for us 
in the interest of time, I'll try to sum it up as quickly as I can. The Bible, the story of the Bible, starting in Genesis chapter 3, starts with marriage. It starts with sexuality. We see Adam and Eve, not good for man to be alone. God created Eve for Adam, and, and they, they became one flesh. Marriage. We see that the first consequence of sin after the fall was what? Their eyes were opened and they realized what? They were naked and they were ashamed. The first consequence of sin had to do with, with shame of sexuality. The first recorded consequence. You see in the scripture that God refers to himself in the Old Testament as the bridegroom to Israel, his bride, often the adulterous, unfaithful bride. You see that adultery is tied to idolatry in the scriptures. The analogy of marriage flows through there. You get to the New Testament and you see that Jesus is now the bridegroom and the bride is his church. You see in Ephesians 5 that that Paul ties the illustration of marriage right back to Christ's union with the church. And really, this is only a 10,000-foot overview of this because it's all throughout the scriptures. Then you see in Revelation that the whole story ends with the marriage feast of the lamb and his bride. How is it that a theme that is at the beginning, throughout in the entirety of the scripture, and at the end, bookmarking the entire gospel, is relegated to one or two sermons a year when we decide to talk about sex? when it's one of the greatest, most consistent themes in all of Scripture. What that says to me is we're missing the point about sexuality, that there is something so much greater and more beautiful that God is trying to teach us through our gender, through marriage, through sexuality, and it's about Him. Church, if we want to be effective in this area, we've got to stop looking at the behavior and understand a theology of sex that actually gives life and meaning, because we're not going to conform our behavior to something that has no meaning. You know, the world looks at this and looks at our narrative and we say, don't do that. Well, why? Because. Because why? Well, just because. Because why? They're looking for a why and we don't have a why other than behavior. But yet the scripture is so full of the fact that our sexuality is tied as a parable to our relationship and our faithfulness to God. And not only that, just for a quick little list What would our culture look like? What would our world look like if we simply obeyed in this one area? If we simply submitted our lives in the one area of sexuality? Here's a short list. There would be no divorce, rape, sexual abuse, abortions, STDs, sexual slavery, prostitution, pornography, marital infidelity, premarital sex. Not to mention every single one of the emotional, relational, psychological, economical, and political consequences to all of those things. This world would be unrecognizable. You know, we have to understand sexual sin in a little bit more biblical way. We need to give proper weight to this. In light of eternity and salvation, sin is sin. There is no sin that's any greater than anything else. In light of eternity, my homosexual sin is no different in light of eternity to your gossip. Sorry to tell you that, folks, but in the same passage, 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 9 through 11, where it says, do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Homosexual is right along with the gossips. In fact, in that passage of scripture, every single one of us can find ourselves in that sin list. Why is it that mine was laid out as the worst? It isn't. All sin disqualifies us from eternity. The analogy goes like this. If you steal a candy bar from the corner store, that's a sin. 
My sexual behavior was a sin. Both of those things needed the blood of Jesus to cover it so I could be in relationship with God. Now, on a temporal level, on a here and now level, those sins have different consequences, don't they? If you steal a candy bar, you can return it or you can pay for it, and pretty much everyone's okay. But if you rape someone, that has a lot of different consequences. If you have a child out of wedlock, that consequence is not going away. In fact, the Apostle Paul says sexual sin is different. Sexual sin you commit against your own body. I'll tell you the truth. Jesus has covered my sin. I am white as snow. I am washed clean as if I had never sinned eternally. But he did not give me amnesia. And he did not give me a lobotomy. I have every memory of everything I've done. And I deal with the consequences of that. Because God forgives. Biology doesn't. I know people I've ministered to that are dealing with HIV and AIDS because of the the choices they've made. They are eternally secure with Christ. He has redeemed them and he loves them. But they will die as a consequence to their sin. We have to understand as well that surrendering these issues before the Lordship of Christ carry different consequences as well. This is the last area I'd want to talk about because time just gets away from me. But how we relate to the, to the LGBT person. I'm going to say this because I think this is one of the things the church needs to most understand. When we ask people to surrender their lives to Jesus, when you came to Jesus, for a lot of us, that really didn't require a whole lot of sacrifice. Jesus almost became something that we added on to our lives. Or that maybe our lives began to run through the filter of Jesus. And, and really, they did, it didn't change much in us. You know, we still had the same plans. We still had the same community most of the time. Maybe we had some things we had to give up. Maybe we slowly transitioned into a more Christian community. But by and large, a lot of us in this room haven't had to sacrifice a whole lot to follow Jesus. But if you imagine someone who's in the gay life and their entire identity and their entire community, the relationship, the family they've built... Everything is wrapped up in this issue. And so when you say to them, give your life to Jesus, essentially what you're saying is, you're going to lose your spouse, your community, your identity. You're going to be ostracized from the community that you have found your home in. And you're going to do all of that with no guarantee that this God is going to change your affections, no guarantee that you will ever have another romantic relationship, because even if your affections change, you've got to find someone who's willing to marry you with that history. And you're going to do this being connected to a community who doesn't really know what to do with you, doesn't really know how to relate to you, and only meets maybe once or twice a week for a couple hours. That is a big ask, and it is a big sacrifice. So I'm going to say this like this. How dare we ask people to surrender all of that if we're not willing to walk alongside them and step into the gaps, if we're not willing to do what the scripture says and bear one another's burdens, how dare we? How dare we ask that? You know, Jesus puts it this way on a spiritual level. Don't kick out the strong man. You know, you could put it this way. Don't exercise a demon out of a person without Binding up and closing up that house and filling it up with something else. Because you know what? In physics, a vacuum doesn't stay empty. It will be filled. 
Spiritually, we don't stay empty. We will be filled. Physically, we don't stay empty. We will be filled. And if we ask someone to give their life to Jesus and they are brave enough to risk it all in doing that, and, and what they get is a relationship with a God who is sometimes incredibly intangible, and they walk into a community that does not know what to do with them and does not take the personal responsibility to do what James says, to take care of the orphans and the widows in their distress, then how dare we even challenge them to do that? We are going to leave them worse off and more disillusioned with Jesus than if we would have just left them alone. And I say that from watching it happen over and over and over again where people had an encounter with Jesus and they took the risk to surrender their life before him. They gave up everything and they found no support in the body of Christ. And to their best efforts, none of us are meant to do this alone. And in that particular struggle, it's even harder. And they died on the vine and they gave up their journey. Because even with a small community like our former ministry, it wasn't enough. They need the body of Christ. Church, I've said a lot of things today, but can I just, can I really emphasize this? It is our privilege as brothers and sisters in Christ to walk alongside people and bear their burdens. And in particular, people from this community will not experience the transformation of the Lord without linking arms with us. We have to be willing. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable in relationship with people to see their lives transformed. And why will we do that? Because Christ made himself very uncomfortable for us. Amen. One last thing, and then I've got to land the plane because I'm already over my time. I apologize, Pastor Dennis. (laughs) We must never lose sight of the fact that not only do we have a God who wants to redeem people out of this, but there are wonderful stories of transformation. Please, church, never believe the narrative that God cannot transform lives. When, when you take away God's ability to transform someone in this lifestyle, you rob him of that same transformational power for you. We have to understand that there's, there's a lot out there that, that, that talks about sexuality and the permanence of it. But that doesn't matter. We serve the God of all creation. We serve the God who, as Isaiah 61 says, takes things long devastated and rebuilds on ancient ruins, who takes ashes and gives us beauty, who takes despair and gives us joy, who does all of this because it's his good pleasure to do it. Can we believe and hold out in faith that God has the power to transform anyone from anywhere because he is a God who just delights in doing it? And the tools he wants to do it is you. You are the tools in which he wants to do that through. Let's pray. Lord, there's been a lot said this morning. A lot of difficult words, a lot of probably convicting words for, for many of us. 
But Lord, what I want and what I hope we walk away from is a sense that your spirit is inviting us to something awesome. Lord, I pray for everyone here. If there's people here who felt like they, through this message, have, have just missed the mark, Lord, just forgive us. Forgive us now. Cleanse us from any wrongdoing or any ill treatment that we've had towards this community, any, any judgments that we've had, and just invite us to be more like you. Lord, fill us with your power. Fill us with your mercy and your compassion. Fill us, fill us, Lord, with your desire to see this community redeemed and transformed. Lord, give us boldness and give us grace. Give us truth and give us love. Give us you, Lord God, so that we can carry you to that community. Lord, bless my brothers and sisters this morning. Encourage their hearts. In Christ's name, amen.